Well, hey, let me ask you a question this morning. I know it's early and uh, this uh, early service sometimes, you know, you do get accused of being a little dead in here sometimes, all right? All right, I'm just saying, not you, Steve, all right? You, you're, never, you're never dead, you're a hopeless romantic. I just learned that. It's great. Guy writes poems for Valentine's Day. If any of you guys still need one, he'll, he'll pin out some words for you there. I know it's early, but I want you to think about this question right as we start this morning, and that is this. What breaks your heart? What is it that can make you cry? Now, now for some of us as men especially, it's very easy for us to go, oh, you know, real men don't cry. I taught my boys when they were really, really little that real men cry. Only I told them this, real men cry, but real men cry really, really loud. And so even when they were little, when they started crying, I'm like, cry louder, louder, cry, cry like a man. And they'd cry like a man, right? There's nothing girly about crying, right? What is it that breaks your heart? What is it that, that makes you cry? Now, a couple of weeks ago, all it took for grown-ups to cry and have broken hearts for weeks was a coach to call a pass play on the one-yard line, right? And people all across the globe well, their hearts were broken, especially if you were a Seattle fan, right? And you began to cry. You know, when we're kids, it really doesn't take a lot for us to cry or for our hearts to get broken. I was thinking yesterday about all the things, you know, a lost puppy and, you know, your world is forever changed, right? No dessert, you know, because you didn't eat your vegetables. That happened to me quite regularly. And I would be crushed. My heart would be broken, it's bedtime and my heart would be crushed. Now it's bedtime and as adults we go, woohoo! It's bedtime, right? Isn't that awesome how, it, uh, how that changes? We get in middle school and high school and we begin to experience the little things we celebrated yesterday uh, called love. And who here hasn't had their heart broken at least once by love that should have been that never was or love that was and then ceased to be? And our hearts were broken, and it made us cry. You know, as we go through life, there are many things that can and will break our hearts. And many times we're moved emotionally, but that's where it actually stops. There's no action. It is simply emotion. And sometimes our hearts break for others outside of our own little world. But for the most part, our hearts are broken, and we're moved emotionally about only that which affects our little world. This morning, I want you to consider, over the next few minutes that we're together, I want you to consider the question, what breaks your heart and moves you to action? What breaks your heart and moves you to action? Around 587 BC, the Babylonians invaded Judah, and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem along with Solomon's temple. And this was the third of three different campaigns uh, in that region. And all, all three of those occasions, the Babylonians took a number of Jewish captives and they would take them back to Babylon. If you're familiar with your Bible, this is where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is when on one of these occasions when they were taken during the first invasion. And about 70 years after the first Babylonian invasion, Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, who had conquered the Babylonians, gave permission for the Jews to actually return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. 
And out of some estimated to be somewhere between 2 and 3 million Jews who had actually been deported, only about 50,000 of them decided to return to the promised land. That's something like about 2%. And you can only imagine the condition of the city because it had not been occupied. It had been desolate for some 70 years. And in the book of Ezra, we read that under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, if you are thinking of having another child and you have a son, what a great name, Zerubbabel. Under his leadership, the Jews returned to Jerusalem and they actually rebuilt the temple. And then years later, under the spiritual leadership of a man named Ezra, things were actually looking up for a while. In fact, it appeared as if Israel was once again on the brink of becoming a great nation and that God was going to bless and move amongst them, amongst his people like he had done before. But as had been the pattern for the Jewish people, and I believe as is the pattern for humanity in general, the people refused to turn away from the very sins that God had previously judged their ancestors for, and very quickly things began to go downhill. And as a result, the temple was not maintained, and it began to deteriorate, and sacrifices ceased to be offered, and And instead of the Jews adopting uh, and practicing their religious practices as God had told them to do, they began to do the things that the culture around them did religiously. And as is normal, not only in Jewish history, but again in human history, once God was ignored, then the political, the social, and the spiritual conditions in Jerusalem began to deteriorate as well. And they actually got to the point where any historian would have called them deplorable conditions. The walls of the city were down, and as a result of that, the city was open and was vulnerable, and the people felt fear, and ultimately they felt shame. These were people that were supposedly God's chosen people. And yet that's the condition they find themselves in. About 15 years after the book of Ezra ends in Persia, there is a man that we meet in Nehemiah chapter 1. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there for just a moment this morning. A man named Nehemiah who was confronted with the conditions of the city of Jerusalem. If you have your Bible open there, I want to do something just real quickly because our our time is short for the things that I know we need to accomplish here this morning. But I want to read Nehemiah chapter 1 to you. Follow along there in your Bibles. If you don't have your Bibles, just listen as I read. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. Don't miss that line. Let me read it again. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. 
Verse 7, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you've commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. Verse 9, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcast are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And then a phrase that for many of us would appear so out of place, he tells us, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, just a few years ago, a number of you weren't here, but just a few years ago, we did an extensive study on the book of Nehemiah. And over the past few weeks, I've been studying this passage again. And, you know, one of the most intriguing things to me about studying Scripture is that you can study Scripture, you can go through a passage, what you think to be, exhaustively, and yet come back to it months or years later, read it again, and all of a sudden, God speaks something new into your heart. And that's what's happened to me over the last couple of weeks. And what I want to do with you just real quickly is I want to share four or five observations that I've made from this text. Number one, it's interesting to me that Nehemiah wept for days over the condition of Jerusalem and its people. Not minutes, but days. When is the last time that that you or I wept for days over anything that was outside of our little world? Most Bible scholars, in fact, believe that, that it's quite probable that Nehemiah had never actually been to the city of Jerusalem. While he was a Jewish man, he, he had been exiled years and years before his family had, had been gone, and, and Jerusalem was only a place that he had heard about. When is the last time that you and I actually wept over a situation which did not directly affect us that was outside of our own little world. Observation number two, many of us watch the news day in and day out, and we see hurting people in our community and around this globe. And we might shed a tear and think about it for a moment, but days? When is the last time that that happened to you? That your heart was broken and you were moved to the point literally of tears, and not just for moments, not just for minutes, but for days. Here's Nehemiah, verse 11 tells us he was the cupbearer to the king. Now you may look at that and you go, well, that doesn't seem like too snazzy of a job. I mean, you just stand there and kind of hold a goblet in your hand, right? Well, back in these days, the cupbearer to the king was an incredibly important position. The cupbearer to the king, uh, scholars tell us, was an incredibly important position. It was that person that would actually try the, the drink and the food that the king was about to eat And the king would wait for him to eat that food. And if he was still alive, then the king would eat. What a great job, right? Now you think, you could die at any moment. Yes, you could, but it was a very trusted position as well. Not only that, but Nehemiah lived in the lap of luxury, in luxurious surroundings there in the the city of Susa. I don't know about you, but as I've thought about this this week, if I'd have been confronted about the conditions in Jerusalem... In our modern-day culture, what I would have began doing is I would have began praying about it, right? That's what we do. I'll pray about that. And my prayer would have gone something like this. God, my heart is broken. 
that the city of Jerusalem is in ruins. And I pray you'll send somebody. I just pray you'll you'll lay it on the hearts of people and that they'll be broken and that they would go and they would rebuild that city. Any of you pray prayers like that? All right, just me. I'm, I'm the only one that prays that. I get that. But that's the kind of prayer I would pray. I can't be the answer to my prayer, but maybe one of you will. Maybe will God will, will lay it upon your heart to do just that. And yet Nehemiah uh, assumed maybe he was the man. It was tragic to hear the story this week of 26-year-old Kayla Mueller, who was killed at the hands of the Islamic terrorist group ISIS. And when she heard, I was really moved this week, when she heard of the desperation of people in Syria... Her heart broke and she was moved to action. And she left the comfort of her own home. She left the comfort of America. And she went to work with a humanitarian organization there in Syria. And ultimately she was kidnapped. And sometime in the last few weeks it cost her her life. She didn't just pray for people in Syria. She didn't just assume somebody else should go. She assumed she was the answer to why her heart was breaking and that she should go. We see in chapter 2 that not only did Nehemiah weep for days over the situation in Jerusalem, but he was actually moved to do something. He assumed that if it broke his heart, then he should do something to change things, to change the situation. And then last observation God often puts us in places of influence in order that we might use that influence for greater things other than our own comfort and benefit. There are some of us that have been convinced that if if God does something great in our career and we're given a promotion that comes with with authority and and responsibility and leadership over a group of people, if it comes with with a big salary, then certainly God put us in that position for our own comfort, for the accolades of people that are around us, and in order that it might benefit us and our little world. Can I say to you this morning that God oftentimes puts us in places of influence in order that we might use that influence for greater things other than just our little world. And I'm so thankful that there's a man named Nehemiah that bought into that, that understood that. And he said, yes, I've been given this important position. Yes, I enjoy the the luxuries of life here in Susa in the king's palace, but I can't stand by and do nothing. I've got to do something. And he did. If you're new to a relationship with Jesus, or you've never been a Bible student, I would encourage you to continue reading in the book of Nehemiah and see how God uses Nehemiah. He does so in an incredible way. Can I ask you again, what breaks your heart and moves you to action? I sat with a friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago who doesn't know Jesus as his Savior. I think God's drawing him to himself, and I think very soon he will. But I asked him, I said this, hey, outside of your own little world, outside of concern for your wife and for your kids and for your parents and your immediate family, what really breaks your heart? What do you see in your community, in this culture, in the world that breaks your heart? In fact, I asked him this question, hey, is there anything that breaks your heart enough to move you to action? Anything outside of your own little world? Some of you might ask, what's the point? If our if our hearts are broken or not. Here's the point. If our hearts aren't broken for people in this community and around the globe, then any building that we build is just that. It's a building. It's a place for a holy huddle to gather, 
and simply serve ourselves until Jesus comes. I want to say to you this morning, a year after we kicked off our II, our Irresistible Influence Project, I want to say to you this, and I want to affirm this to you, and I know I represent the elders when I say this, I refuse to be satisfied with that description of church. I'm not interested. I don't want to be part of it. I don't want to be part of building something that is filled with a group of people whose hearts are not broken to the point of action for people in this community and around the globe. Is there anybody that's with me? I refuse to buy in to that definition of church. Charles Cheney, the former vice president of the Southern Baptist Home Mission Board, said this, America will not be won to Christ by establishing more churches like the vast majority we have now. We need different kinds of churches. And I am really excited as I look out over America and the globe, what's happening in a number of churches in this community There are churches in the triangle that are making an incredible difference. But I'm telling you this, America will not be won to Christ by having uh, churches like the vast majority of those which exist in this community and around the globe. We've got to do something different. That's why in the fall of 2006, there were a group of us that met and we asked the question, what would it look like if we had a church where Christ followers were challenged to grow up in their faith while at the same time we had a place where people who were, who were searching, who were seeking, who were wondering what this was all about, what it meant to have a relationship with Jesus, that they could actually walk in and it was a safe place for them to come and explore the claims of Christ on their life. We said, what would it be like if it was a place where messed up people felt like they were surrounded by other messed up people, but we were pointing them continually to the answers? And so we said, by God's grace, we're going to be that place. And as I look back over seven years, I think that we've seen a lot of that happen. I don't know that we've seen it to the degree that, that God really wants to do it. I'm not, I'm not sure that we've totally tapped into to what God could use us to do if our hearts were moved, if our hearts were broken, and they were moved to compassion. But by God's grace, that's the kind of church that we're going to be. We want to see the gospel change people's lives. I'm not interested in building a pretty building that people drive by and they go, isn't that a nice building? Isn't that pretty? Wow, what a nice addition to our community. I want people to drive by that place and go, in that place, that group of people, those are the people that pointed me towards Jesus and he's changed and transformed my life. That only happens, though, when we are people who are actually moved with compassion. Not we just have an emotional moment, but we're moved to the point of action. And so we've been passionate about that mission since we launched here at Panther Creek High School in the fall of 2007. We've been a portable church since we launched at Panther Creek, and um, it's been great. There are mornings like this morning when I get a text and they say, we can't open the children's ministry trailer. And you think, oh great, it's going to be real fun this morning. We're going to run relay races in the parking lot with kids. We're going to do things. But we've been flexible and I saw immediately, you know, David Amon's going, I'm going home, I'm going to get a blow dryer, we're going to blow. And finally, they got a blow torch. I don't really know what that looked like exactly as they were blowing that lock, but they got things open. Those are just, just the nature of being a portable church. Do you know, though, it cost us $5,000, approximately $5,000 per month to be here in this place for just these few hours on Sunday morning? $5,000 a month, about $60,000 a year. And it limits our opportunities that we might have the other 164 hours of a week. 
And the concern is that we've had all along is how do we build a building to use for our purposes and yet maintain the core of who we are because we are not a church that is defined by a building. We're a church that's defined hopefully by a strategy, by a movement, and we refer to that as the gospel. And so we don't ever want this facility to be a monument or a memorial, but we want it to be a place that's used for influence. The problem is that most people in a, in a community don't see the church as a viable place to go for help, right? You think about some of your neighbors. There are a lot of your neighbors that wouldn't think, I've got a problem, let me go to church, right? In fact, many people think, if I've got a problem, I'm not going to church. Why? Because those people will judge me. They think they're better than me. In fact, surveys tell us that as many as 60% of the population would never consider visiting a traditional church. 60%. And so we have to build a place certainly where the church gathers, but it all must also be a place that, that in our community is viewed as a place for help and hope, where people encounter Jesus at the crossroads of life. And that's why we've said we want to build a place of irresistible influence. And so many of you know, this is just a reminder to you, some of you are hearing some of these things for the first time, that uh, a few years ago our staff and elders began asking the question, what if our building was a place where we as a church gathered to worship and grow while at the same time uh, was a place in our community where people viewed it as a place of help and hope? What if we built a place that we designed and, and we paid for it, but it was built to be a blessing to people in our community? And so that's what we've been trying to do. We asked ourselves to imagine if our community knew our campus as a place to go for help and hope. Some of you have heard me talk about over and over again how when you move into a new community, it doesn't take very long before you recognize where the hospital is, right? And if you drive by a hospital, there's a sign that says in red letters, what? Emergency and an arrow that points that direction. And you know that if I ever have a situation where I need to get to the hospital immediately, I know where it is. And I know if I go through those doors, they won't, they won't say, now, now, who are you and, and what? They will help me immediately. We've said, wouldn't it be great if people in our community viewed, not just Northwest Community Church, by the way, but churches in general that teach the gospel as places to go for help and for hope. Just like somebody views Harris Teeter. We think of Harris Teeter, when I need groceries, I go to Harris Teeter. Especially if I want to pay a lot of money. I go to Harris Teeter. Other than that, I go to Aldi's, right? If I need clothes, I go to some place like Old Navy. If I need Mexican food, hey, where else is there to go, right? I go to Lost Trace. If I need a donut, used to say Dunkin' Donuts, now I go to Duck Donuts. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that's where it's at. I heard that you love that place, Susan. That's the rumor that's out there on the street. Wouldn't it be great if people said, I am in crisis, I need help at the crossroads of my life, and they thought, I'm going to go to that place. I've heard that they've got help there. I've heard there are counselors there. I've heard that there's a, a, a group for, uh, for those that have lost somebody, for those that have been addicted, for those that have been uh, divorced and are trying to rebuild their lives. I need help with my marriage. I need help trying to figure out how to be a great parent. My finances are a mess. Wouldn't it be great if people said, that's where I'm going to go for help? The only way that people will ever do that is if we become a people that are part of Northwest Community Church and our hearts are broken for those people and we are actually moved to action. And so several years ago, we began to pray and we said, God, hey, would you give us a piece of land? 
And we don't want you to give us just any piece of land. We want you to give us a piece of land that we'll look back on and we'll say, only God could have done that. And it's really great that we believe that's exactly what God's done over the last year and a half or so. I wish I had time this morning to, to just tell you all of our story. It's one of my favorite stories to tell. I tell it to my pastor buddies who are scattered all over the country. And I don't say, look what we've done. I just say, look what God's done. I mean, I just believe God delights in doing things that blow our minds. As we looked at, looked at a few weeks ago with, um, uh, in a passage, we were talking about how God wants the credit. God doesn't want to do something so big that you can get the credit for it because you could do it on your own. God wants to do something so big that there's no doubt who did it. And that's exactly what we believe that God has done. And so in the spring of 2013, we identified a 60-acre piece of land on the corner of Morrisville Parkway and White Oak Church Road. And as most of you know, our plan since we went under contract was to sell about 38 to 40 acres of that as, uh, for residential development. And so we signed a contract with Baker Residential, and hopefully by the end of March, we're going to close on that transaction. And our purchase price for the 60-acre track of land was $4.5 million. We have a bridge loan on that right now. And our contract to sell the residential track, just the 38 to 40 acres of land, is just a little over $4.5 million. And that means, yeah, hey, you can clap. It's the 9 o'clock service, but go ahead. Come on, let it out. And that means that just in a few weeks, Lord willing, we're going to own our 20 acres on Morrisville Parkway alongside of the tobacco trail, free and clear. That property, by the way, Realtors estimate, and some developers we've talked to, realtors estimate that that property has an approximate worth, that 20 acres that we will hopefully by the end of March or right around there, we'll own free and clear. That property has a value of almost $3 million. That's like a but God thing, right? That's like something that none of us can get the credit for. I don't care how smart you think some business people are in our church and how we negotiated deals. God gets all the glory. God gets all the credit for that. We asked him to do something big, and we believe that he's done that. And so all the gifts that are being given to our Irresistible Influence Project are going to actually go to build our first facility that God has provided. And most churches our age, by the way, would have a capital campaign, and they would spend that money to acquire land. We have the benefit of being a seven-year-old church, and every dollar now that we're giving in our Irresistible Influence project is going to go directly towards building those first buildings. And now the question is, what do we do with what he's provided? I'm reminded over and over again that Luke 12, 48 says, everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they've entrusted much, they will demand the more. If God has entrusted us with great things, guess what? He expects us to take it seriously and he expects us to manage well what he's entrusted to our care. And so while this campus will be a home to our Sunday morning worship gatherings and other ministries, we want this place to be a blessing. We want really for, for that campus not to be known as Northwest Community Church. We're very seriously thinking about putting on the sign, Northwest Community Church meets here on and these times. Other than that, it's a place, right? And we want it to be known as a place, again, of help and hope. We want to leverage the location on the tobacco trail to become a destination for our community. I want people to come right off that trail, right onto our campus, and rather saying, keep out, residential area, we want to say, come, come. There's a water fountain. 
Uh, there's a place to let your kids play uh, on a playground. Uh, we're going to have relaxed outdoor seating areas um, uh, around a fireplace. There's going to be a playground, Lord willing, and a pond. Uh, and it's not going to say, no fishing, stay out, keep away. We're going to say, come. We want you to come. We want you to enjoy this facility. We want you to enjoy this place that the people of Northwest have provided for this community. Our meeting rooms and our other spaces, yes, we're going to use them on Sunday morning for uh, what we do, uh, but during the week, we want them to be available for meeting spaces, for community use. And um, that pond, I had some people ask me this morning, are we really going to have a pond? And is it really going to have fish in it? Unless they die, yes. I mean, we're going we're gonna to do everything we can to do that. And please, if you're new, don't just go, well, that just typifies the American church. Now we're going to have a pond, right? There's some of us that are cynical, and I know you can sit there and you can say that. This has nothing to do with that. This has everything to do with being a blessing in this community. I want to see moms and dads walk their kids onto our campus, and I want to see them throwing hooks in that water. And I want to see them catching, catching big catfish or a big bass. And I want to see them enjoying that. And I want to be known as the church that's friendly to having people on our campus. Somebody just said to me, well, somebody's going to fall in and you're going to get sued. We probably will. That's why we have insurance, right? I mean, hey, if we're going to pay the premiums, I mean, at some point we might as well get sued, all right? I, I don't, and I don't take that lightly, but we live in a society where that's just going to happen. And if we didn't do ministry because we were going to get sued, we'd just sit here on our hands and we would do absolutely nothing. By God's grace, we're going to do something and we're going to be a blessing to this community. Our first phase building was originally planned to be about 15,000 square feet. It's grown as the architects looked at our programs and as we've grown over the last year, and now we're just a little over 16,000 square feet, there'll be about 420 seats uh, in the worship area, with uh, those seats will be all removable so that that room can be used for other things uh, and other activities. One of the priorities in our first phase building, and you can see these, by the way, uh, in, a, in a large scale out in the cafe area uh, after the service, uh, one of the things that's very important to us is that we have good children's ministry uh, space. And not just so we can attract young families, but we believe we are raising certainly the next generation and in a culture that is bombarding these kids and these young families constantly, we want them to be bombarded with the gospel and the truth of God's word. And so we want to provide great environments for those children. And you can see that that's a priority in this phase one. Our lobby and our gathering areas. You know, somebody asked me this morning, what about this fireplace? What's that all? That's all so we can sit around, so people in our community can sit around, so they can gather. You say, well, isn't that a little bit? Hey, we want to create nice places for people to feel like they can, they can be together. We value relationships. And so it's important for us to have places where people can mingle and where they can share life. Some of you will remember that one of the things we really wanted to see happen on our campus is we really wanted to build a, uh, a vintage chapel. And that's really, you know, I'm excited about the phase one building, but I got to tell you, at the end of the day, I just want us so badly to be able to build this chapel. You can see a picture of it. There might be one in your brochure there, but there's a large picture of it out in the cafe area. It is that little country church, only it's going to have modern conveniences. It's going to sit underneath trees. And you say, well, what, what's that all about? Well, most churches today really aren't designed and built for weddings, for funerals, for those kind of things, right? They're big black boxes uh, that have really cool lights and really cool sound and all of those things. And our worship space is going to have those. 
But we want a place where people really feel like, man, that's, that's a place where I can go and I can connect with God. I really envision, the town of Cary, in fact, has affirmed us for this, which in and of itself is something really incredible, I think. And they've said, we think it's awesome that people will be able to come off the tobacco trail. And they said, will you actually leave the doors open at times? We're going to, no, we're going to close them down and go, stay out of our chapel. It's for weddings. Don't track dirt in. No, hey, we want to have it open during the day. And I hope it becomes known as a place where people can come in. I think we're going to open up some significant conversations, and I think God's going to do some incredible things because we took the time to build that little white chapel right off that tobacco trail. By the way, if you've never been on the tobacco trail, you need to get out there, all right? Some of you need to get out there for some very obvious reasons, I being one of them. But you need to get out there, and you need to see how our community is using that trail, And literally on Saturdays, the thousands and thousands of people that are using that recreational trail. And that chapel will be used not only for that, but we want a place for weddings. When people come and they say, hey, we'd love to get married in that chapel, we go, we would love for you to be married in that chapel. you got to come to our six weeks of premarital counseling. And in that six weeks of premarital counseling, guess what we're going to do? We're going to tell them what it takes to, to have a great marriage. But we also know as followers of Jesus, that begins where? begins with the gospel, right? If you don't know Jesus, if you don't have the most significant relationship that you were created to have, you will never have the marriage that God wants you to have. And we're going to introduce people uh, to Jesus. From time to time in our community and in our church family, uh, people are going to die. That's inevitable, right? I realized that this week as I turned 49, that uh, no doubt I'm more than halfway there. We're going to die. And we want to have a place where, where, where people can use that for funerals and things of that sort. And, and I got to tell you, the only way the chapel happens is if, uh, is, if we, uh, is if we really continue to give significantly. Because things are incredibly expensive. And I know that, uh, I know that, you, understand, that you understand that, uh, certainly. Well, our plan is to break ground sometime this summer or fall. And however, there's still a lot of stuff in the pipeline which might allow our cost for sewer to actually be very little or nothing at all or $500,000. <laughs> and so we're doing our best to say uh, we'd kind of like not to spend a half million dollars on sewer. And so we're looking at, at a lot of options. I was on the phone with Joel Carpenter even yesterday and there's new information that we've gotten the last couple of days. And we believe God's got his hand all in that. He's working all of that out. But we certainly don't believe that it would be responsible just because we say we want a building to just go out and start building and spending money that we don't have to spend. And so we're going to wait until we get some clarity uh, on that sewer. And we think that that's going to happen. It could be in the next few weeks, certainly in the next couple of months. And, and so we, we want you to know that and to understand that. That's why I say we could possibly break ground this summer or, or fall. And I just don't want you to nail us down to a date yet. So the logical question that you might ask is, how much does all, all this cost? Right? It's kind of like going into a car dealership and them showing you this great car. It's got all the options. It's the right color. It's got leather. I mean, it's got, and you're going, this is awesome. And then you go, like, what does one of these cost? And then they tell you and you go, I could never have that, all right? The simple answer is, and I don't mean to make this uh, simplistic, but it really is, it costs a lot. We told you, in fact, last spring that we estimated our phase one cost to be $3.9 million, and we were just at the beginning stages at that point. Those are some estimates that we got from uh, architects that we were working with. 
that estimate has proven not to be exceptionally accurate. And um, I mentioned to you back in December, just to give you a snapshot of one area, they estimated our, our site work. Uh, just to get to the point of a building pad where we could start the building, originally that was estimated to be about a half million dollars, and right at the moment it's estimated to be $1.5 million. Okay? You're very smart people. We live in the one of the most educated areas uh, in the country. 1.5 minus 500,000 is what? See, you're bright. You're smart. That's a million dollars right there. All right? And uh, you can imagine when we got that information that that has been a lot uh, to swallow. But we also know that these phase one costs are very top-heavy because of all the site work that needs to be done. It's obviously a, a virgin site. There's never been a building built there. And some of these costs will go away, and we won't need to have those costs in, in future phases, certainly to that degree. But while the cost is a little greater than what we initially thought, we're going to have a better handle on the budget really here in the next uh, few months. And I want to assure you that before uh, we break ground, we're going we're gonna to come back to you and we're going to let you know exactly what our budget is before we start. And I would share more with you. I can share the site information with you because um, uh, I know that those, are, that those are real numbers. We're getting quotes back uh, for that. We're trying to whittle that down, but I know that that's a real number and we'll come back to you before we, uh, before we break ground, uh, certainly. We are committed to building a building without hurting our ministry budgets uh, as well. And so the less debt we carry, obviously, every dollar that we're, is given is one less dollar that we have to borrow and one less dollar that's taken away from ongoing uh, ministry. And so needless to say, we need you to continue to pray and we need to uh, ask you to continue uh, to give. And, and certainly those of you that have been here and are giving, keep doing what you're doing, keep being faithful. Uh, those of you that are new, what we're asking you to do is consider maybe God having you be a part of what we're continuing to do. And so next week, we're going to have an opportunity to affirm together our commitment to becoming a people in a place of irresistible influence. And when you entered the auditorium, hopefully this morning you received a brochure, and inside that brochure there's a little card like this. And I want to explain to you what we want you to do with this card. There are basically four blocks on the card. One says, I've already pledged and I'm affirming my commitment. All right? I realize that's a number, uh, I was going to say of you, I'm going to say of us. I really, Diana and I went all in a year ago, and um, God's capable of doing that a little bit more, and, and we're still praying and thinking about that, but for the most part right now, that's the box that I would check. I'm all in, I'm committed to it. There are some of you that might say, I already pledged, but I need to change my original pledge. Maybe something's happened and you just go, I don't know that I'm going to be able to do what I originally pledged. Maybe something happened in your personal situation, in your job. Maybe that's been a really good thing. And maybe you go, you know what, I didn't step out enough, and I can do more. Well, we'd like to know that. And so that's what that next box is for. The third box is for those of you that weren't here a year ago, and you say, I haven't pledged yet, or maybe you were here a year ago, but you weren't ready at that point uh, to be involved. My new pledge will be given over, over the next two years is, and you put that amount of money in there, and I plan to give it weekly, monthly, yearly, one-time giving, however you want to do that. The last block to me is the most important. This last block that we believe is very important because of what I said earlier when we started this morning. If we build a really pretty building, but we have a people whose hearts are not broken for, the, for people in this community and around the globe to the point of action, then our building means nothing. 
And so what I really want you to do, all of us, myself included, all of our elders, all of our staff team, down to the youngest person that's capable of filling this out, I want you to, I want you to think about this week, what breaks your heart? Not just in your own little world, but what breaks your heart and actually moves you to action? And so next week, we're going to come with those, put those in your envelopes. Don't put them in the offering towers. We're going to collect those uh, together as individuals, as families, and we're going to all say together that we're in and we want to be part of seeing God do something big. And, and obviously, we can't do this unless people give. And by the way, we don't serve a poor God. I heard a pastor say one time, the issue isn't does God have the money the issue is, is God going to be able to get you to get the money out of the pockets which he's put them in, right? That's really the question. But if we give and our hearts are broken for people in this community and around the globe, I believe you're going to look back, those of you that stay at Northwest and you stay part of this family, I believe, some of you know because you've been here since day one, about 10 of you, I believe you're going to sit back and you're going to go, I got to be part of that, I got to be part of seeing God do something incredibly big, incredibly large. And so what really does break your heart? I want to end this morning there and move you to action. I've thought a lot about this uh, the last week. I can talk about this building stuff. It's so easy for me. I mean, I can talk about this stuff in my sleep. Ask my wife. I probably do. All right, I got all the facts, all the figures. I understand the strategy. I'm, I'm crystal clear on that. But what I've really been thinking about this week is what breaks my heart, what breaks our heart to the point of action? And I got to thinking here late in the week, there are so many stories of people. I'm not really that emotional of a guy. And I started writing down stories of people right here at Northwest who's, I, who, who, who have hearts that I know are already broken. And they don't pray about what they should do for month upon end ad nauseum. They're actually doing something. Let me give you a few of these stories. Neil and Sherry Eller have had their hearts broken for Indian students. Do you realize that the Indian population is the third largest in the triangle? And so Neil and Sherry decided they could do something and they could make a difference. Maybe some of those students would come to know Jesus and they'd take the, Bible, the, the, the gospel back to their city or back to their family. So they call these students their kids. Their hearts were broken and they did something about it. They don't know this. They're probably embarrassed that I'll read this, but they got an email just yesterday. Hi, Neil and Sherry. Valentine's Day is all about love. And there's no one better than you and Sherry at spreading God's love wherever you go. Happy Valentine's Day to, the, to two of the most loving people in my life. I'll always be grateful to you for making me feel that I have a family here too. And I can't pronounce the name. Needless to say, it's an Indian name. They forwarded this email to Matt last night. And the forward in the message, it said, these are the kinds of emails that we live for. That's a broken heart, Neil and Sherry. It's a broken heart that didn't cause you just to have emotion, but it caused you to, to move. I think about my friend Susan Dees, who came to me not too long ago, and she said, I, I really feel burdened for people that have needs, that need counseling and they need help, but I really don't feel like I'm, like I'm equipped to handle them, and I'm really feeling overwhelmed by the thought of going back to school. I don't even know if I can do this. 
And she said, would you be a reference for me if I want to go to Southeastern uh, Seminary and take some classes? And, and I said, yes. And she's done that. And she's studying hard with the purpose of becoming equipped. And so at age 27, she decided to go back to school. Right? I let my, my wife read this last night. And she said, did you mean to put down that Susan is 27? I said, I thought she was. I don't know what Diana meant, but I thought that she was. Susan, right now, many of you don't know this, but she's pursuing a degree in counseling. She did something. I think about Nicolette Hutcherson. Some of you know Caleb and Nicolette. There are missionaries in Beirut, Lebanon. I want to read this to you. When Nicolette was in the fourth grade, the kings lived in the Netherlands, and Bill had been on a mission trip to Romania, leading worship, preaching, teaching, uh, delivering basic necessities. And he took lots of video, and when he came home, he showed the kids this video. And this is what Nicolette wrote just yesterday. She said this, I watched the video you took of the boy in the orphanage in Romania in the snow with no shoes. His pants didn't fit and were falling off. I remember it very clearly. I wanted to help. And then later she says, in grade nine, I saw a documentary about the effect of neglect on babies' brains, and that sealed the deal. I watched the documentary one night, thought about it all day at school, Rode home on the bus, rang the doorbell, mom opened the door, and I said something like, I know what I want to be when I grow up, or something to that effect. And today she serves with her husband and those three little girls, three, two, two girls and, and her little boy. She serves in a war zone. You can't call it anything else but that. And the grandparents sit in back of the auditorium, and they're excited about that. Why is that? Because that's what broke her heart. And it broke her heart to the point of movement. I think about my friend Bert, Bert Weidel. His heart breaks for those in our, in our prisons. And he doesn't just talk about the need, he goes. And he makes a difference in lives. And in fact, some of those very men he's brought right here to Northwest Community Church. I think about Aaron and Jen Quirk, who decided that they didn't have enough craziness in their home. But they decided that their home was large enough to care for kids who needed homes. And so they went through the training to be foster parents they saw the need, their hearts were broken, and they did something. There's many families here at Northwest that have hearts that are broken for kids all over the world and kids that don't have moms and dads, and they don't just pray for them every night at the dinner table or something like that. They literally have gone to the uttermost parts of the world to get them, to bring them home, and to provide them loving families and a chance to know Jesus and the love of a mom and a dad. I close with, um, and I know I'm embarrassing some of these people. You just have to get over it, all right? Because I'm going to celebrate you. Because this is, this, these are examples of broken hearts that are moved. I think of my friend Ken Russolo. By the way, if you, need, if you need glasses, that's where these came from. And am I styling or what, all right? I think he's the best ophthalmologist in the triangle. And um, if, you need, if you need help with your eyes, you go see Ken. Ken realized that there were people that needed eye care who couldn't pay. And so he didn't pray that God would send somebody to help those people. He assumed that he was the answer to that. And so last year in his little office, they did 228 free eye exams at the Durham Rescue Mission. And uh, I, I, I read, as they wrote that, the value of eyesight is priceless. Ken's heart was broken for people that couldn't see. He knew the gift that God had given to him. He knew how God blessed his own life. And so he said, 
I'm going to be the answer to that. What breaks your heart? You know the sad thing is that many of you sit here this morning and if you're really honest, you'd have to say, nothing breaks my heart outside of my own little world. And that's exactly where you live. In your own little world. I, I, I want to challenge you that, that being part of the gospel, coming to know Jesus and embracing the gospel, means then that we have the greatest responsibility and yet the greatest privilege to go and influence people with the life-changing message of the gospel. But that will never happen until you and I have hearts that are broken just like Nehemiah. And that brokenness moves us to action. Paul said it well when he wrote to the Corinthians. He said, it is the love of Christ that compels me. That's what causes me to get up and do what I do. What breaks your heart and moves you to action? The greatest example of all, as I thought about it this week, you know, we read about in the Gospels that Jesus saw the multitudes and he was moved with compassion on them. He wept over Jerusalem. And you think about what he did. He was moved to action, right? He didn't just go, oh, I really feel sorry for these people that are sheep without a shepherd. I, I feel very sorry for them. No, he made the ultimate do something, and he went to the cross. And that's why you and I have reason to be here today. We have hope for eternity because a heart was broken and moved to action. I really feel strongly I really feel so strongly about us grasping a hold of that message. I want you to grasp all of this stuff that's in this brochure and your pledge card, and I want you to come prepared next week and all that. I'd, I'd be lying if I told you I didn't want you to do that. I do. But if our hearts are not broken to the point of action, that building means absolutely nothing. It is nothing more than any other pretty building in Cary, North Carolina. We want this to be a place that's filled with people from day one whose hearts are broken and moved to action. That's what it means to be a people of irresistible influence. Let's pray. God, I've gone way over my time, and I meant to do it. Because I think this is so incredibly important. I can't think of how many churches over Hundreds of years have built buildings and they've become nothing more than monuments to a group of people. And God, you know my heart. You know the hearts of our staff and of our elder team. We don't want that to happen. We want to be a people whose hearts are broken. And as a result of our broken hearts, we want to be moved to action. We want to assume that we are the answer to our prayers. So I pray that you do just that. For some people, their wheels are already turning. For some people, they're, uh, maybe hopefully, there's some that are already convicted and they recognize their hearts are moved and broken over nothing outside of their own little world. God, I pray that starting now, you would use your spirit to break through their hearts so that we can be a people of irresistible influence. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.